You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment, deepening your practice. It is September 2nd, 2021 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And I thought, uh, because we have been going over the uh, individual um, Brahma Viharas, uh, loving-kindness practice, compassion practice, sympathetic joy practice, and equanimity practice, that we should talk about them uh, together as, as a, um, a, a group of strategies that you can use, which are really intended to develop uh, a strong capacity for positivity and that what we're uh, orienting ourselves toward is a, a constant mindfulness where we're tracking the present moment experience and noticing conditioning which is likely to lead to um, negative thought patterns arising and then intentionally shifting them so that uh, we're uh, in a state of positivity. Um, and the Tibetan practice uh, of um, uh, when I met Dan, uh, he was my the first uh, Tibetan teacher who I found who was actually kind enough that I would I would be willing to learn from him because most of my previous encounters with uh, teachers in uh, different Tibetan lineages, which was that they were at least my perception of them was that they were mean. Um, and I don't like it. It doesn't work for me. I feel too guarded and it's hard to take in what they're saying. But Dan was quite kind and um, he said that you want to intentionally direct the mind toward uh, positivity. And if you can go for 13 years with no um, negative thought, then you can dissolve into rainbow body which I had not heard of prior to that. Um, so you just dissolve into a, a light of positivity. But along the lines, before you completely dissolve into the white light, if you can redirect your mind out of negative states into positive states, it's just more enjoyable to be here and now in the present moment. Um, a lot of times when we come into the practice, we don't uh, we don't really monitor our thought uh, processes. And if you look at it through the attachment lens, uh, it's it's really the subject of mentalizing, the ability to be in the present moment, monitoring uh, your thought patterns without interfering with the spontaneous arising of them. And then having agency to direct the mind toward uh, positive experiences. Most of us uh, come out of childhood and uh, in childhood, we begin to take on the emotional regulation strategies that our, our, our caregivers instruct us in. Um, we're all born as uh, auto-regulators. We don't really have the capacity to recognize that there are people outside of ourselves. Um, if you've ever been around an infant, you, you, uh, you know, under say five months old, it really doesn't matter to them specifically who's attending to them. Anyone can attend to them. 
I know that uh, as uh, parents or people who are related to infants, we do like to personalize their expressions, but they're fairly uh, um, instinctual rather than specific towards somebody. And then uh, as the brain develops uh, between say five and eight months, the, the brain develops sufficiently that uh, children can begin to recognize specific caregivers and to develop a preference for one uh, caregiver over another. We call that the beginning of the attachment list or the hierarchy of attachment uh, figures in the list. Um, children tend to pick a, a primary caregiver and, and open to the experience of learning from them. We call that epistemic trust. Uh, epistemic, epistemic trust means that you believe that the person is telling you the truth and you believe what they're telling you is meant to be helpful to you. And because those conditions are in place, you can learn from them. Um, if epistemic trust is broken, then uh, you don't believe they're telling you the truth, you don't believe that they have their best interest, and you, you block the uh, transmission of information that they might offer you. Um, between five and eight months, say a child uh, begins to develop a hierarchy of preferences in relationship, and they tend to focus on one primary caregiver. Uh, and uh, we call it in our culture, stranger anxiety, that if a child sees somebody that they don't know, they become frightened by that, and they, that activates their attachment system, which turns them toward uh, the caregiver. If the caregiver comes uh, reliably enough, the infant moves out of autoregulation into an externally regulating state where the uh, emotional regulation strategies of the caregiver uh, the child uses to regulate their uh, in, internal states. If the a caregiver comes reliably enough, then the child moves into a collaborative experience uh, of care. They express themselves, the caregiver understands what the expression is, and then responds by meeting their needs. So there's a process of mirroring back to the child uh, what the experience is, so that the child learns through the expressions on the face that to associate their internal states with a particular uh, presentation that's coming at them. And then if the caregiver meets their needs well enough, uh, they enter into a secure attachment bond uh, with the caregiver, and they learn to collaborate with the caregiver in, in terms of the expression and the, and the, the receiving of care. Um, as the emotional regulation piece uh, is instructed in this way to the child, the child takes in those ways of regulating themselves and they um, develop self-mastery around those skills. One of the things you may notice about the description that I've just given is that it's pre-autobiographical memory. So we take in uh, a lot of this in this non-verbal uh, exchange with our caregiver, uh, I described the, 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 the breadth of that. If you have sensitive enough caregivers meeting you, but that doesn't always happen. And uh, sometimes the caregiver uh, provides uh, intermittent care or unreliable care. And so the, 
the child never settles into a kind of collaborative exchange. They never develop self-mastery. They re remain dependent on the caregiver for emotional regulation. Christian? Is that collaborative exchange what then allows the child to sort of take in either a safe or unsafe version of the outside world? Because I'm, uh, I know a six month old that suddenly became very skeptical of me and it's, I need to figure out how to, <laughs> how to fool that child into liking me because it's wreaking havoc on my self-esteem. Oh, well, that's a very interesting point. Um, the primary caregiver feels this unconditional love and ad adjuration from the child and everybody else feels the rejection of the child um, because they have a solid preference for one person and you become a little bit strange to them. And so uh, part of that is gonna be more, more contact so that they're, they recognize you and a consistent response of delight to them. Um, what often happens to children with uh, secondary and uh, tertiary caregivers is that the uh, the experience of rejection causes uh, the secondary or tertiary caregivers to lose the sense of delight in the child and then make a demand that the child take care of the emotional state of the caregiver, which is a kind of role reversing. Uh, this is a very natural thing that happens um, because the secondary and tertiary caregivers are not important at this phase of the development in the same way. And uh, when they do become important, if they haven't been able to overcome their own uh, conditioning around rejection, they don't show up for the child when the child turns to them and they don't notice that actually they're the ones who are rejecting of the child, not the child rejecting of them. And so you just show up and you don't take it personally. You understand that this is the nature of the human condition and you provide uh, the care and the delight. There's a few tricks that you, you were asking for tricks. <clears throat> as long as the child can see the primary caregiver in the visual field, they don't feel as anxious. And so you can hold the child, but just turn them around so that they can see their caregiver. And then they'll very contentedly bounce up and down on your lap or walk around with you. But just be mindful that you keep orienting them toward uh, the visual experience of their caregiver, if they're seeing, obviously, but, uh, or hearing. They need to have, uh, they don't have uh, the capacity to separate so that they have to have some visual experience of the primary caregiver. So then you can wander around with the child and, and have an experience of the child and the child will uh, uh, intermittently attend to you as long as whenever they get a little bit fussy, you can just turn them around and they can see the person that they need to see so that they feel a sense of safety and continuity. Um, but you you notice that switch between anybody's good and then all of a sudden it's very specific in terms of what they need. Yeah, I saw I saw the the kid, and then two weeks later I saw the kid again, and like just tears and terror all of a sudden. <laughs> I was like, I didn't I didn't get like slashed in the face or something like that. I don't think I no, no. scars or. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't that at all. It's just. Oh no, it's somebody new. 
uh, and you don't even have to be new. It's it, it's it's they're really at that point developing to the point where they want that uh, symbiosis with uh, the primary caregiver. Hopefully, they get enough of that so that they don't worry about it. That's what that what that's what happens when uh, the attachment is is insecure, uh, and it depends. Uh, kids whose caregivers are, are neglecting and consistently neglecting never move out of the auto-regulating stage and so they never develop the, the rest of the system they're just uh, self-contained um, uh, kids whose parents come unpredictably or unreliably develop um, gonna just I forgot to set that. Um, <clears throat> become preoccupied with where the the actual caregiver is because they're unpredictable, and so uh, they become preoccupied or worried about it. And really, what you're trying to do is have a, a, a child that can settle in. In that interval before uh, autobiographical comes online, so depending on on how that developed for you, and you may notice that you, if you think back into your early childhood, that you have experiences um, that you can remember, but they're individual experiences. They don't. It's not a continuous flow of memory. And then all of a sudden, there's a more continuous flow of memory. That's when the autobiographical memory is coming online. Uh, and um, then you can begin to have a sense of remembering what the instructions were in terms of the family system for emotionally regulating. But most of the time, it's so well embedded in you that the the shift between it just being purely nonverbal and being verbal and then being uh, unremembered and remembered, uh, you shift into this and it's you have the sense that it's always been like this. There isn't a before and after to create a contrast so that you can see the difference between the two. And depending on the emotional regulation strategies that the caregivers use to, to regulate you, you take these on as if that's the way uh, it's universally done, that all people are like that. It's, it's not, um, the, the capacity to mentalize is not yet developed in children and so there's just this assumption that this is the world and the world is the same for everybody um, and particularly in our culture where we tend to be isolated by socioeconomic groups uh, there isn't much contrast to create a different sense of it and so you use these states uh, these uh, systems of thought to regulate most people the main form of emotional regulation is thinking and so you think these thoughts and they they're regulating something happens in the present moment uh, we take it in as data sensing data um, the object that can be sensed makes contact with the capacity to sense it uh, consciousness of the sensing experience arises. It's evaluated for urgency. I like to say vedness, the poly word for that. Uh, is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neutral? We know from looking at brain science that there's a bias toward uh, difficult or, or urgent material over everything else. Three-eighths of a second to process that. Uh, almost all information that would... Um, 
come in as sense data is not deemed important and is not processed into consciousness. And uh, if it's pleasant and there's time to experience it, it's allowed into consciousness. So three-eighths of a second at half the intensity for negative experience and uh, half a second uh, and twice the intensity for it to be for a pleasant experience to arise and almost everything remains unconscious so um, i like my neuroscience and the, the the group that i tend to use their numbers of evaluated the body mind 11 million bits per second is what the body mind can take in and 16 bits is what consciousness can represent one six so when i say almost everything is neutral that's 10 million nine hundred and 99,984 bits just never get in. And then the 16 bits get in. I like to think of it not so much as the center where we make these decisions, but as the, uh, the last chance veto button. Did you want to ask a question, Jake? Yeah, I did. I've, something I've been thinking about um, and I wondered what you thought about it is, does the sense of self really arise immediately out of the affective state? Like the, the feeling, the sense of feeling? What do you think about that? I don't know that that's necessarily how I experience it. Um, Like a negative feeling may produce a negative association in the sense of self, or a positive feeling may produce a positive association in the sense of self. I do think that there is a working model of the of the self, which are stored as gists or algorithms in memory, and that when they're activated, it plays, and the the concert of those uh, activations we identify in a particular way. And that the uh, mind states or the different emotional states that are associated with that experience can be uh, positive and negative. And uh, so you're saying more <clears throat> like sense of self is more related to memory than the affective state. Um, I would think that that would be true. Is that your experience? Well, I, I was just kind of questioning based on my reading of the, the Buddhist suttas, because, you know, in the Paticca Samutta, however you say it, the Vedana conditions uh, tanha, and that, that tanha is really the, I see, is the origin of the sense of self. Uh-huh. So, sen so sensations would uh, immediately condition the sense of self, and then attachment would would be like uh, more associated with their memories. So the Vedana Pachana, Tanha, Tanha Pachana, Upadana. So that's just how I was constructing it. And I was wondering if how that, uh, how, how you, how that sensed to you. That was just my question. That's it. Um, I wonder about that too, because um, the brain science is pretty reliable and clear. Uh, that most of that process happens, whether the, the sense of self or the sense of knowing it is happening or not. And then um, 
in the experiences of going into these no self states where really there isn't any memory that comes from the that there isn't really even an, any under any fixation or understanding of anything um one of the things that uh when i was um practicing pretty hard in uh, in shinzen's world that it would be possible to go into a, a, what i thought of as a no self state and have a conversation with somebody but not under not fixate any of the words and still be able to speak but not fixate anything that i said and so there would be an exchange of uh, communication which most people reported as quite satisfying but i wouldn't have any uh, memory of it or experience of it and i often found in interviewing with shinzen that that would be the experience he wouldn't remember anything about the conversation because he wasn't uh, uh, in a sense of a, a self in that way. I mean, that makes sense to me based on the idea that the affective state would be one that's really based on the perception of impermanence. Like the perception of impermanence produces a particular type of affective state and then that affective state produces uh, following conditions without the sense of self in them. Right. But as a householder, not so useful. <laughs> and which brings me to actually quite a, an interesting uh, uh, thought process in myself is uh, coming into that state where everything is really quite pleasant and the, uh, the aftermath of that state is really quite pleasant and, and lasts and, and productive produces a sense of profound well-being. Um, and yet the sense of self arises and there's an attachment to the meaning that the sense of self generates in response to all of this uh, is ultimately uh, liberation just where there's there's no sense of need to attach um, any of that and it's simply unknown all of that in 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 being um i can tell from uh from my own experience that it, it it doesn't feel rewarding to be in relationship to somebody who has no memory of any of the interactions that we have um, and so uh and i notice in the world that uh particularly in the buddhist world there's not what I would I think of as a sufficient response to the injustices of the world and the the, the suffering of the world. But I also wonder, uh, does that come from this place of simply being able to drop out of all of that and be in this sort of undifferentiated energy? And and then how do you make sense of that? Perhaps it's related to this uh, theory of metacognition as part of growing up i know that's something that's influenced dan's teaching a bit this whole teaching of ken wilbur's about the theory of growing up as metacognitive stages but it's something i haven't really been able to understand much about yet um so Shinzen used to say that you want to be able to move effortlessly between the fixated self-state and the 
the unfixated non-self state so that there's no suffering but then when you need the experience of the brilliant capable self it's immediately available to you and you can use it as an instrument uh, for uh, action in the world and then when you don't need it it just dissolves but what i notice is in making that brilliant sense of self really what is uh, embedded in it is a lot of positivity because if the sense of self arises and it's filled with uh, a lot of negativity then each time the sense of self arises, you're filled with these extreme negative states. And that can be the thing that really pushes people into an aversive response to the experience of the sense of self arising. That, that in, an, in a mind that isn't really tracking that, it can actually turn into a, a kind of uh, self-hatred. So the, the sense of self arises, it's embedded with negative states, negative states arise in the body, there's an immediate aversion to them, and then the self-generated thought processes that are used to regulate the aversive response to that particular sense of self tends to be uh, generating the, the anger or self-hatred uh, that uh, people experience often. Without the, the, the consciousness or the, the investigation in the sense that understanding that actually the these thought processes are not um, necessarily uh, problematic in themselves, that the conditioned uh, uh, content of them uh, that is learned in the family system is really what's at issue here, but that what the body-mind is attempting to do is to use its capacity to regulate itself uh, with the tools that it has and that that system of regulation is actually useful. And what needs to happen is that you need to train the mind out of using these negative uh, thought uh, systems or, or patterns uh, into positive uh, uh, systems so that you regulate yourself through joyfulness or you regulate yourself through compassion or you regulate yourself through loving kindness and not through uh, the the far enemies of those. George, can I follow up on that? Sure. So I feel like uh, when I'm around people that regulate with afflictive strategies, and I'm using a beneficial positive strategy, right? I feel like I'm the weirdo that's happy <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's seething with hatred. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like um, compassion practice some kind is more appropriate. It's still good. Uh-huh. Um, it's, a... it's an interesting thing, um, positivity. I was talking to somebody, and apparently there's a term called posse, which I'd never heard before, which is slang in uh, hardcore uh, kids about uh, about thinking positive thoughts when you're, you're supposed to be thinking, you know, death metal, uh, and, uh, and, and actually talking about the persona of, of positivity as, as something that is brave, uh, to present, uh, because the, the anger, the hard, the hardness is, is more socially valuable. Um, yeah. 
some sometimes it could it could be inappropriate or dangerous to have a positive an expressed positive affect around people that have really strong negative affects and aren't mentalizing that. It's happened to me where I'm in a situation where people are just having an undertone of negative affect. And then I try to overcompensate the situation and give like a big goofy smile or something. Right. I look like a, like a total enemy, like a total <laughs> jerk. You know? so maybe that's where equanimity comes in. You have to mentalize the situation and use equanimity sometimes. Right. Um, it, it, in some ways, sounds like, uh, without suggesting you're doing anything wrong, that they feel unseen by your response. Yeah, right. And it is, it was a very kind of unempathetic situation. It was kind of like a defensive thing, you know, to, right. you know, how am I going to defend myself? Like, you know, like rejecting negativity, rejecting this negative situation instead of accepting and empathizing with it. Right. So, um, yeah, no, I, you, you've often heard me say that uh, when somebody comes at you, you want to try and evaluate their state of mind so you know how to respond to it. And I always say, make a joke, which is what it sounds like you're doing. And they're uh, responding in, a, in a, a negative way, which would give you the information that they just need emotional soothing. You can't reason with them at all because they're beyond reason in that moment. And so you just flip into some kind of uh, emotional regulation strategy that would, would work with them. And then uh, after you've regulated them to the point where you think that the, the cognitive capacity might come back online, that is to say they're re-mentalized, uh, you've somehow scaffolded their mentalizing so that that function comes back online. Then you can go in uh, uh, and uh, try and uh, understand cognitively what's happening. Is that making sense? Um, it's a lot of attention toward somebody else. And one of the things about uh, uh, structuring this use of your energy in terms of caring for other people is that you want to flow a lot of energy into the people that are close to you and a lot less energy into the people that are not close to you which is not the same thing as not attending to anything but uh, and also uh, some things you tell some expressions you make to people that aren't close to you and then then you're free to express yourself completely with people that are close to you, but the people that are close to you are close to you because they've demonstrated their trustworthiness. They've demonstrated their sensitivity and it's reliable. Uh, we sometimes make the, uh, we often uh, as insecure people rush in too quickly uh, into relationships without actually figuring out whether the person is trustworthy or not, and then uh, have a negative outcome, and that reinforces the sense that that it that it isn't a, a place where you can just be open, and that conditioning is hard to overcome, particularly if the early family system is also in that that uh, way. Um, 
So I, um, I do recommend that you spend time evaluating your thought processes and that you abandon the afflictive thought processes uh, pretty much wholesale and retrain the mind to just work in, 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 in positive uh, thought processes. Any emotional situation that you can regulate with negative situations, you can also uh, regulate with positive thought uh, processes. It's just a lot, of, lot less demanding on the body-mind system, and also it's a lot uh, safer uh, in terms of uh, people being able to connect to you. Uh, um, one of the conversations I was having uh, earlier today with somebody who, um, and this is, uh, we call this the CCRT or the core conflict resolution themes. Uh, they came, they come from very different family systems and the conflict negotiation systems in, in the two family groups are really not compatible. And they didn't succeed in negotiating the definitions of that um, uh, well enough. And so uh, uh, both parties in the relationship have a, have a completely different reference to what happened which was one person uh, expressed uh, uh, verbally uh, intense, intensely angry thoughts to somebody who uh, never had that experience. They don't know what to make of it. It's frightening and, they, and dangerous to them. And, and the simple expression of that anger that in, in a relationship with somebody who was used to those kinds of expressions wouldn't have been that big a deal uh, shattered the epistemic trust in the relationship. And it's really hard to repair that once that happens. Um, so pay attention to that. Moving in the direction of positivity also means that all of, uh, all of that anger, all of that cruelty, all of that sort of envy and jealousy gets uh, replaced. And so if those are driving forces, those are energies that you use to uh, fuel the things that you do in your life, you're going to be without those energies to do it. I remember, um, how long ago would have that been? Quite a long time ago. So late 90s, um, I, I was sitting uh, Shinzen uh, and I was doing these long retreats. He, uh, at that time, he was, it was not uncommon for him to do, say, a 15-day retreat. And um, I was sitting with, ang with releasing anger and ang releasing anger and releasing anger. And then I got to the end of the, the anger pool and didn't have that constant... Uh, energy of anger and it completely transformed my social landscape because the people that relied on me to be angry wanted the anger that was part of the the basis of the relationship and when i didn't have it anymore uh, i couldn't meet their needs in the relationship and in, in a period of about a month 
most of the people that relied on me as a steady source of anger simply abandoned me because I couldn't provide for them what they wanted. It was quite a surprising, Christian. Did you come to the conclusion that there was some useful context for anger in your life? Or did you just go, this isn't serving me in any way? Well, I, I had, uh, up until that time, uh, had it reported back to me uh, a lot <laughs> that my anger was so intense that it was frightening. And that uh, because of that, and because of the unpredictable nature of the outbursts, that they didn't want to be close to me. And that actually was the main motivation because I wanted to be close and they were too afraid of me to be close. Uh, and so um, when I, uh, when I initially did the touched into the somaticized emotion, I had a lot of different kinds of somaticized emotion, but nobody had ever said that I was too sad that they didn't want to be near me or that I was too fearful and they didn't want to be near me. They all said, you're, when you go off, it is really scary, and I, 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 I'm always on guard around you, wondering when that's going to be. And it wasn't that often. I mean, at least it didn't seem to me to be that often. But it was frightening enough that um, that that was a, a an unsurprising thing that somebody might might say to me. So I, I guess what I'm getting at is I can contextualize uh, skillful uses of anger in terms of like recognizing and fighting against some kind of injustice or setting boundaries. Not that it's necessary for setting boundaries, but I could see that if you got rid of that, you, you might go so far. Is in there is there a boundary that you could set with anger that you couldn't also set with kindness? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I could see it in a very like visceral, uh, maybe that's not the word, visceral kind of situation where something is happening and you need to react very quickly and that might be the most skillful action. Uh, so then that would be a different experience, I would think. The brainstem is one part and the prefrontal cortex is another so um we uh it's what i say so you're standing on the street talking to somebody and a drunk driver veers out of the, out of control bumps up on the curb and almost runs you down and you jump out of the way in a peak of anger nothing you can do about that because it pre uh, it's it happens before consciousness and then you but then you run after then him you, and pull him out of the car and beat him up then you run down the block screaming obscenities at him. That would be the prefrontal cortex, something else, which you have total, uh, well, in theory, total uh, choice as to whether you allow that to happen, right? Right. So I would say you can't do anything about the uh, uh, brainstem's automatic responses because it proceeds knowing about them, but the secondary stuff that you can. And then can you find a situation where anger uh, in a secondary form would be necessary and that there wouldn't be an alternative that wasn't, that was positive that you couldn't use instead? I guess, you know, this is a big question, but 
I can see it in terms of like we have various underclasses in this country and you know like if if uh you know like I think the quote is like anger or rage or or, or something is the voice of like the but anyway I'm messing up the quote but like you know for people that have been in a class system that has kind of shoved them down the whole time there's kind of righteous anger that you know that's like how am I going to address this injustice? Um, one of the things that I've noticed about um, the the resistance that's necessary to change these things is that the people who get angry burn out long before the need for the resistance is over and that they drop out. And that the people who can come from a place of positivity uh, endure and endure and endure and resist and resist and resist long enough that something can actually change. Um, uh, you know, the, the, um, I don't know that, um, what comes to mind is, uh, um, the reconciliation process uh, for in South Africa, say, uh, is more effective in, in change or than the anger, which often leads to violence. Stas? Kind of lost track. We went pretty <laughs> different direction. Uh, I, the thread I was going to go off of. So there's somaticized emotion and pool work. Right. There's the rainbow body and positivity. <laughs> Same work. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I guess. Um, How long can you go without a negative thought? If you were me, it would not be very long. We would not be talking minutes yet. <laughs> um, and so this is, you know, I mean, how automatic is all of this, right? I will wake up from a dream with my mind engaged in negative thoughts, recognize that my mind has been engaged in negative thoughts and shifted into a positive thought and go back to sleep. Um, I will be walking along or engaged in something and I'll notice the, the process of negative thoughts just spontaneously arising. And as soon as I catch it, I redirect it. Um, um, my mind also, uh, one of the dominant negative thoughts that my mind generates is fear. And fear has a very visceral experience in the body, which is, I find really, for the most part, unpleasant. Uh, and so I uh, have motivation to really change it as fast as I can. But the, the process is, is so deeply embedded that it, it's often before I'm even aware that that's what the response is arising in consciousness. So it's a constant uh, process of, of retraining. Uh, is that making sense? 
Making perfect sense. <laughs> <laughs> so just so I'm clear, I mean, I feel like the somatic work and the positivity work, or, I mean, it's kind of the same thing like you're saying, but also the, if you can resolve the pools, I mean, like in your case and my experience, it can have a drastic shift. Well, one of the things uh, that happens with the somaticized emotional experience, of course, you have the present moment, the reaction to the present moment, there's usually an emotional response. And if it's in the same resonance as the pool, it begins to resonate the pool, and then you have the pool work that comes in. I mean, the, the expression of that somaticized emotion, if it exceeds the window of tolerance, then the mind just turns on the same old thought that generated the pool in the first place. And you're, you know, as fast as you're bailing, the water is uh, pouring into the boat. And so you have to do both uh, the releasing of the old and also the preventing of the mind from continuously refilling it so that you can get to the place where that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, so that's and... the four right efforts. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and it is so much energy. That's the the part that was really mind blowing to me is is doing that somaticized emotional work released so much energy that I could then use for other things, um, and that became something that people complained about. I had too much energy. <laughs> you can't do anything right. <laughs> no, absolutely. So. Uh, why don't we do some practice? Um, if you had a choice of one of the Brahma Viharas to do, which one would you like to do? I like equanimity. Okay. We have one vote for equanimity. Jake? Uh, I'd suggest sympathetic joy. <laughs> okay. Hey, George. As it's, uh -huh. it's connected to attachment. Julia's okay. going to be meditating with us. Oh, so whichever, good. So, whichever is easier <laughs> for her to understand. <laughs> she has something she wants to say to you. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> I have secure attachment. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> What's so funny about it? What's so funny I'm, about it? I'm not saying it's funny. I'm saying uh, I I think that's wonderful. Okay. She's going to do 30 minutes with us, right? George, George is going to be watching you, okay, Julia? Okay. <laughs> um, let's do meta because that's the, the, the easiest one, I think. All right, so everybody settle in. So any comments or questions uh, on the practice that we just did? So, uh, Stas? So I think I remember you telling 
that uh, Dan reprimanded you at some point about holding the, or not holding the view, but focusing on how it, changing your perception? Uh-huh. Um, so um, I was talking to him about the, the six lamps meditation and, uh, um, and uh, how the, how um, intensely pleasant the sensations in the body were after doing that practice for a while. And he said that I was too much in the body and I needed to return to the view. That's what I came to mind. Is that what you meant? I think so. Yeah. Does that apply to metta practice? Um, well, in this particular way of practicing, there really is no attention to the body at all. It's all view, all mind state. Um, any experience in the body can happen. It's just, it, it just really does drift into the background. And then when you experience it, you're just experiencing it through the view. This is the difference between the wet and dry meta practice. In wet meta, you're using phrases uh, to generate positive feeling states, which is a kind of self-generated emotion, which is fine as long as you're staying in the experience of the present moment. It's easy to slip into sentimentality and then actually you're just caught up in the thinking process and not actually in meta mind. And the utility uh, for the attachment work, but also for understanding the, the nature of enlightenment uh, really does require the understanding and some agency in views or mind states. And so that's why I prefer this concentration-oriented practice. Good enough? Juliet? Well, I didn't get the easy person part. No? What about for yourself? I was like, what about for mommy? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was thinking maybe the panda would have been easy. Yeah, the panda. <laughs> she said she she said she felt like the see here feel was much easier. Oh, okay, good. Yes, this is a little bit of an advancement. Were you able to repeat the phrase? Okay. No. Yes. So, or no. Yes. Good. So then we'll start there, but also remember if, if you can't do the meta meditation, it's okay to go back and do the see, hear, feel instead. Or just do it for mommy. Yes. <laughs> Someone else? Christian. Uh, just real quick, because I hate when I butcher quotes, I think the quote I was trying to get was the <laughs> riot is the language of the unheard. Right. Uh, um, anyway, but um, regarding Children throw rocks at tanks, because that's all they have. And then oh, yeah. they're met with machine gun bullets. Uh, one of the things um, maybe a few years ago, I found that anger was completely overriding my mind because the injustice was so terrible. 
and uh, I can't remember in particular what it was, but then I decided I would reread uh, a people on the utility of uh, a violent, angry response versus a, a compassionate, kind response. And actually, it was Noam Chomsky's work that was the most moving to me uh, in the way that I think. He said that uh, the the right, in this case, the people who have power are constantly attempting to provoke the people who are powerless into violence because as soon as they make it their very minimal expression like a child throwing a rock at a tank the disproportionate response is to level the town and they have the the capacity to do that and they completely crush it and justify it if you look at what's been happening in Myanmar, uh, the military justified the removal of 800,000 Rohingya because a police station was attacked and 12 officers were killed. This is the, 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 the habit of the dis, uh, disproportionate response. So you see in this country, the right uh, uh, provoking insurrection uh, in an attempt to generate that that kind of outrage and then the disproportionate response which is almost always a hard swing to the right to uh, fascism and and that kind of uh, uh of uh, uh suppression that an oppression that comes from that and so we have to pay attention to the this uh, uh, intentional provocation that is meant to generate violent response uh, so that they can justify that uh, extreme uh, reaction. Uh, I mean, it's farcical that you could say that an attack on a police officer, police station justified the forced uh, removal of 800,000 people. It's just disproportionate. Or if you look at uh, the bombing of the World Trade Center, uh, thousands of lives were lost. And what was the response to that? Uh, how many uh, civilians were killed in response to that? 500,000, a million, a million and a half, a billion dollars or $2 billion worth of damage uh, and the response was $6.6 .6 trillion in war. I mean, it's just really important, I think, to pay attention to that. I'm de-escalated. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, did, I did have a question about um, the mind state. Um, uh -huh. I'm trying to parse out the the sending or the intention aspect and i'm trying to figure out whether that's like a component of the mind state itself or if that kind of powers it up and i'm wondering how you experience that because it seems like it's a really integral like when i have the sending like that sort of outward right sent to whoever that or even to myself that that's i'm trying to figure out if that's the mind state if that's part of the mind state or if that supports it um, this is a, we're entering into this metaphysical part of the understanding of, of uh, Buddhism, 
that without that sending out, without the intention to radiate it outward, without it being received by the target and then sent back, uh, uh, it was explained to me that you can't come into the high concentration state. So it's a necessary piece of this and it creates this cycle of exchange. And so, um, I, I don't find a need to question that, so I just sort of go with the instructions the way that they're given. Um, but then you might be reporting that that actually is your experience, with that when you radiate outward, uh, the metta mind is reinforced in a way that it isn't if you don't. Yeah, there, there seems to almost be a sort of direction or a physical component to it. Even when, when I do it for myself, it's like I can, I'm, I did this thing where I was imagining myself looking very like delightfully upon myself, which is weird layers of, of meta, but, um, <laughs> and, and attachment. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. I, I, I'm, I'm just making a big gumbo at this point, but there does seem to be that direction to it. That, that seems like, a. uh, an important part of it, but I, I'm not sure if that's exactly the mind state or if that just really, like if that's like a scaffolding for the mind state. Right. Um, you will be able to figure that out. George, Jake, uh -huh. have, you, have you ever thought about connecting your uh, meta practice to uh, Satipatthana? Um, integrating it? Have you, have you yeah. thought through how to integrate your meta instruction with Satipatthana? I kind of um, teach meta vipassana, uh, and uh, so yeah, I, I I think that you can at any point investigate the states that come up in meta with uh, with uh, insight. Okay. Um, very good to see you all. Uh, we're out of time. There's a few things coming up. We do have a level two class starting September 16th. It is nearly full. Uh, um, so take a look at that. Uh, we are, uh, we have made some spaces for Donna uh, participation this time around because we've run out of scholarship funds. Um, the, the other thing that's happening is our December retreat, which is an in-person retreat in the Sierras. There are five spaces left in that, if you're interested in that. Um, and that's, I think, pretty much it for the rest of the year. We are No, we are going to do another series of level ones uh, in November. No. Uh, anyway, it should be up on the website at some point. We're going to just do the three day longs associated with level one and not do the, the couples class this round. Um, so take a look at that if you want to do that. And then we will start uh, in uh, the winter another uh, level two class then. I offer the teaching freely, uh, but I do hope that you'll make a donation uh, to Metagroup. It does help with the work that Metagroup is doing and also helps support me. Uh, you can find a link on the website if you're able to make a donation. Uh, any amount is appreciated. Thank you for coming, and we'll see you soon, I hope, somewhere on the path. Bye.